All right. Well, let's, uh, well, good evening, everybody. First of all, let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter seven and verse 17. Of course, the two major characters in the book of Acts are Peter and Paul. Peter, first half of the book. Paul, second half of the book. And um, as we've tried to explain, sort of the bridge between the two is this uh, man named Stephen. So Stephen is very instrumental, as we're going to see, in the conversion of Saul, who will become Paul. So you can take the material related to Stephen and divide it into uh, four parts. We've had Stephen's arrest, chapter 6. And as he's arrested, he is brought before the Sanhedrin. And he's given an opportunity to speak. And he does that in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 2 through verse 53. And what a speech this is. Um, it's impromptu, so to speak. It has uh, about six parts to it. It's a sermon that really declares the guilt of Israel. And the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, is so happy with his sermon that they take Stephen and they kill him at the end of it. So be careful about preaching good sermons. Uh, the first part of it is, we covered last time, Abraham's partial obedience chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, going back to the roots of the nation of Israel when it started with this man Abraham um, who obeyed God most of the time. So Stephen is going to do this through this whole speech. He's going to bring up historically problems with the nation of Israel in terms of their obedience and he'll get to the punchline at the end, verses 51 through 53, where he will explain that the current generation is making the same mistakes in their rejection of Jesus nationally. And the second part of the speech, which we started last time, is it's a history of Israel's initial rejections and later acceptances. So Stephen's point is Israel gets it right the second time. They don't get it right the first time. And so in their rejection of Jesus, the same mistake is being made. So they, they're getting it wrong in the first century, but in the distant future, they'll get it right. And to get across his point, he uses two examples. The first one is Joseph verses 6 through 16, which we covered last time. Basically with Joseph, um, and we're studying it providentially on Sunday morning, he was rejected by his brothers when he was 17. 
But after Joseph was elevated to second in command in Egypt, when Joseph was age 30, the family, the brothers, the father submitted to Joseph's authority when he was in Egypt. And that's how the Lord rescued God's nation, Israel, from famine. So Stephen's point in rehearsing all of that material is you got it right the second time concerning Joseph, not the first time. And if that weren't enough of a history lesson, now he moves into part two of that where he makes the same point with the man Moses. And he talks about Moses in verses 17 through 38. So, Lord willing, I'm going to try to cover verses 17 through 38 today. Do you think that's possible? I didn't hear a rousing amen on that. But let's pick up the story of of Moses now, verse 17. But it says, as Stephen is selectively narrating history before the Sanhedrin, he says, but as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So what does it mean here when it says, but as the time of promise was approaching? Well, it relates to a prophecy that God gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, verse 16, where he says, then in the fourth generation, they, that's Israel, going off into Egypt, they will return here, back to Canaan in other words, for the wrongdoing of the Amorite is not yet complete. A few verses earlier in verse 13, Genesis 15, it says, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. So basically what God did is he gave to the nation of Israel a clock. And God does this frequently with Israel. He gives them clocks. You know, your captivity in Babylon, 70 years. Uh, he gave them a clock in the days of Daniel with 490 years on it. And so here's just another clock that God gave to the nation of Israel. You're going to be in Egyptian captivity for roughly 400 years. So when it says here in verse 17, but as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, what he's saying is now it came time to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage through the Exodus event, and now God's hand is on Moses as the deliverer. So when God wants to do a work, he uses a person, just like he used Joseph to deliver the nation from famine. Now he's using Moses to bring the nation out of the Egyptian bondage and captivity, And Stephen is going to make the same point. With Moses, you got it right nationally the second time, not the first time. And it says there in verse 17, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Why are the, why is the nation multiplying in Egypt? Because that's what God said would happen, right? He promised Abram that he would have stars, excuse me, children, as the stars of heaven, as the sand of the seashore, 
and as the dust of the earth. Those are the three metaphors that are used in Genesis. In other words, you're going to have a lot of children, seed. And so, you know, 400 years later, roughly, it shouldn't come as a surprise that God is multiplying his nation, even though they're outside of the land, because that's what God said would happen. The problem is they multiplied so greatly, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, that they became sort of a threat to the pharaohs, one of the pharaohs of Egypt. And so it says in verse 18, it says, until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. So Joseph had a great relationship with the prior pharaoh. It was that prior pharaoh that elevated Joseph to second in command. And now a subsequent pharaoh, a subsequent Egyptian king, (coughs) excuse me, comes on the scene, doesn't know about Joseph, doesn't know about Joseph's ministry or dreams. All he sees is this Hebrew nation multiplying, and that particular Pharaoh becomes threatened to the point where he decided to subjugate in slavery um, the nation of Israel. And you go to verse 19, and it says, It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race, And mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. So that particular Pharaoh, as you know, from Exodus chapter 1, I think it's verse 22, said, Every son who is born, uh, you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you are to keep alive. So he started to engage in a policy of infanticide against the Jewish nation to, to stunt their growth numerically. It's interesting in verse 9 that the Jewish people are called a race. And that should be a no-brainer, right? The Jewish people are a race. Um, I was watching, uh, well, I wasn't watching. I saw a clip of it, of Whoopi Goldberg on The View. Is that the name of the show? Uh, I can't think of three people, by the way, that are more misnamed. Uh, Whoopi, Sonny, and I forgot the other lady's name, Joy. You, talk, you turn on that show, just like there's just grumpy liberal feminists, and you're not very sunny, you're not very joyful, and you're not very whoopy, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> And by the way, the opinions expressed here do not necessarily represent this station or its sponsors. Um, but she was, she actually made the point that the Holocaust had nothing to, the Holocaust, Hitler's Nazi Germany had nothing to do with race. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why do you think the Holocaust happened? Hitler was trying to eradicate the Jewish people. Very similar to what this particular pharaoh is doing through infanticide on the basis of race. So this led to the subjugation of the Jewish people, the enslavement of the Jewish people in the post-Joseph era. And so you see that there in verse 19. Verse 20, it says, it was at this time that Moses was born. See, God is raising up a deliverer. God already knows in advance his plan for getting his people out of bondage 
which he said he would do after the 400-year clock had transpired. He says it was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured for three months in his father's home. And then verse 21 says, after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and nurtured him as her own son. So in order for Moses to escape infanticide, as you know from the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 10, etc., uh, baby Moses was set adrift by his Jewish mother uh, along the Nile. And it's either that or he's going to be killed because of Pharaoh's policy of infanticide. And the book of Exodus, really it's really funny how it describes it. It says it just so happened that this little bat floating basket that baby Moses was in uh, came across uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Now, we know that just didn't happen coincidentally. We know that didn't happen accidentally. This was God's plan to get Moses... Uh, outside of his Hebrew people group and get him into an Egyptian upbringing. The reason for which will become very, very obvious in verse 22. So had Moses not been set adrift on the Nile to avoid infanticide, his little floating basket there wouldn't have come across the daughter of Pharaoh who wouldn't have probably felt fall, fallen in love with Moses in the sense that he's such a cute little baby. I'm going to bring him into uh, all of the benefits of Egypt, and he's going to be raised with all of the benefits of Egypt. So that didn't happen accidentally. That didn't happen coincidentally. Although Exodus says it, it just so happened, we know that the hand of God is in this whole thing because God is busy raising up a deliverer. And God has to do this because the nation of Israel's clock in Egypt is almost at its expiration point. And then if you look at verse 22, it explains exactly why this had to happen the way it happened. It says in verse 22, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. Now, think about this for a minute. If somehow Moses was not set adrift on the Nile, he could have been killed. If he hadn't have been killed, um, essentially what would have happened is he would have lived his whole life as a Hebrew slave in Egypt. Slaves were illiterate. They were not given privileges. They weren't given educational opportunities But because Moses' basket was taken in by Pharaoh's daughter, she was able to, in the Egyptian system, give him the greatest education of the time the world had. And that is very critical to God's calling on Moses' life because Moses is not just going to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. He is not just going to be the lawgiver at Mount Sinai to the nation of Israel, but he is actually going to write the Pentateuch, the first five books of Hebrew Bible, uh, sometimes called Torah 
or law. It's Moses who's going to use his literary gifts to stitch together all of what we call the the Toledot. Um, These are the generations of, these are kind of, um, we've been trying to explain these as we've gone through Genesis on Sunday mornings. These are sort of pre-written accounts going all the way back to Adam. Uh, We believe that all of these ended up somehow in Moses' hands, probably when Jacob left Canaan and migrated to Egypt in Genesis 46. He took with him all these written records. All of these records are going to end up in Moses' hands, and he's the one that has to literarily stitch them all together and create what we call the book of Genesis. Then he's going to record events in his own life, and he's going to write the book of Exodus. And then he's going to be given by God special instruction for the priests, and he's going to write the book of Leviticus. And then there's the journey into the promised land and how Moses didn't make it in. And so he's going to write all that in the book of Numbers. But now we've got a younger generation that needs to have the Old Testament law reapplied to their life, so he's going to write the book of Deuteronomy. I mean, you can't do that if you're not literate, right? An, an illiterate uh, slave couldn't do that. And so this was the, the plan of God to get Moses away from his Hebrew family and roots to get him into Egypt, the highest levels of power in Egypt where he can receive this education. So God knew exactly what he was doing when Moses in his little basket there was set adrift on the Nile. And then you go down to verses 23 and 24, and now we hit Moses at age 40. It says, But when he was approaching the age age 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took his vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Now, you can take Moses' life and divide it into three parts. And this is actually pretty easy to remember because Moses um, lived to about the age of 120. So you take 120 and you divide it by three, and you've got three uh, 40-year increments. Uh, there on the screen where it says Scripture are the different Scriptures that tell you the different sections of Moses' life, 40 years each, divided into three. The first part of his life was natural training. Uh, that's when he was an infant in the basket up to age 40. He received the best natural training a person could have. Age 1, let's say, to age 40. Following basic standard chronology, that would be about the year 1526 to 1486, where Moses is receiving that phenomenal education. The problem is he didn't have his spiritual education yet. And when a person has a natural education and they don't have a spiritual education, 
they're used to handling things through their own power. So Moses recognized his role. He recognized he was the liberator and the deliverer of the Jewish people. And he ventured out one day around the age, around age 40 and he saw an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew. And he knew that it was his responsibility to be the protector and the redeemer of the nation of Israel. So he grabbed the Egyptian and he just killed him. Um, or it says here he, he struck him. When he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance on the oppressed by striking down uh, the, the Egyptian. So what is Moses doing here? He's not waiting on God. He's not developing patience in God. He is not um, trusting God. What he's used to doing is handling things in his own human power. He is on the right path in the sense that he recognizes who he is in God. And he has this tremendous natural training. But he hasn't had a spiritual education yet. So waiting on God, trusting in God, being patient in God, um, waiting for God to help him, all of those are foreign concepts to him. And he tries to fix this problem in his own power, and he ends up uh, oppressing this Egyptian. So what's going to happen is God is going to say, okay, you've had a great natural education, but now let's move you into your spiritual education. Spiritual education is the second one down, spiritual training. It happened from about 1486 to 1446 BC. This would be between the age of Moses from age 40 to age 80, where he is sent out to, as we're going to see in a minute, Midian, He's going to be on the backside of a desert. Uh, he's going to be getting uh, his BD degree, you know, backside desert degree, um, where he is just going to just do this menial shepherding. So he's put into this sort of menial role that's way beneath him intellectually. And yet he's put into that position because God has to give him his spiritual training. He has to learn about humility. Uh, he has to learn about waiting upon God. He has to learn about the sovereignty of God. And these are kinds, of, these are the kinds of things that you cannot learn in a classroom. The way God teaches these things to us is He puts us in places of menial activity where we're performing tasks that are way beneath us in terms of talent and education. And then just, and then God just leaves us there. Sometimes he'll leave us there for years. In the case of Moses, he was there for 40 years, tending these, you know, stinky sheep. So he literally went from the palace in Egypt to this minimal shepherding role. And yet that was a very important time in Moses' life because he was getting his spiritual education. So by the time he hit age 80, which is the third part of Moses' life, uh, the final 40 years, and you see there the different scripture verses at the bottom that talk about this latter 40-year period. 
now Moses is ready to be used by God. Because he's got natural training and he's got the spiritual training. And now he is in a position to lead the exodus. He wasn't in that position when he was at age 40 because he didn't know how to wait upon God. He didn't know how to trust in God. He was used to handling his problems through his own resources. It's during that time period that God is going to give the nation of Israel the law. It's during that time period that God is going to use Moses to give them the law and to preserve them in the wilderness wanderings. And it's during that latter 40 years of his life that he's going to write the stitch together Pentateuch or Torah. Now, the way most of us think is, boy, you should just graduate from your natural training and move right into productivity. (laughs) Doesn't work that way. Uh, Your head could be filled with all kinds of data and all kinds of knowledge. But if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, uh, learning to wait upon the Lord, having your character molded and sculpted in such a way, then you can't get to that final third part of your life. So the spiritual training, although most of us would rather bypass that, is absolutely essential to getting to part three. And to be completely honest with you, most people will never get to part three because they won't submit to God in the area of part two. I've spent a lot of years of my life in part two, to be honest with you. I know exactly what it feels like. It's not the funnest place to be, but it's a place that's needed for one's character to be developed the right way so that they could be used. So the most productive time in Moses' life was that third part, age 80 to age 120. And most people at age 80, they're ready to retire God says to Moses, we're just getting started here uh, because I've given you your, your BD degree uh, in part two. So I just you, I just send that out as a word of encouragement because a lot of people feel that they're stuck in a dead-end job or they're stuck in some kind of role that's beneath them. I, and it's easy to despise that, but I would just encourage you to submit to it because God, what he's doing through all of that is he's preparing you for what he wants to do in your life in part three. And Moses was extremely productive in part three because he submitted to the spiritual training in part two. And he obviously needed that spiritual training because how he's reacting to this Egyptian through his own power in part one. There, there's nothing in this world as scary as a 19-year-old that knows Greek and Hebrew. Okay, I've taught seven years in the Bible college. I ran into really young people that were really smart and really well-educated, and they their head was so big, they felt that they had arrived, and I would look at the way that they're acting, and I would just laugh to myself and say, you know, It's going to take years and years and years for God to deflate your ego to the point where he can even use you. Uh, Howard Hendricks, Dallas Seminary, when the students would graduate with their THM degrees, uh, 
120 units. Greek, Hebrew, church history, homiletics, hermeneutics, and all kinds of other names I can't even pronounce anymore. This is what Howard Hendricks would say to the graduating students. You ready for this? Uh, They would come in for their chapel, graduation chapel, and this is what Howard Hendricks would say when he got up to the pulpit. He would say, gentlemen, you're pathetic. And the reason you're pathetic is it's going to take years and years and years for your life experiences to catch up with all of the information that's been crammed into your head. But if you run into someone very young who's had the natural training and hasn't had the spiritual training, they are absolutely frightening in terms of their pride and their arrogance. And God is going to have to spend a lot of time with them as they're flipping burgers or scrubbing toilets, (laughs) some kind of role that God will put them in to humble them so he can deflate their ego so that they're even at a, at a place where they can be used of God. And so you see this pattern in Moses' life. It's the same pattern he uses in all of our lives. I'm not sure each of our lives has these nice, neat 40-unit, 40 40-year 40 increments. Um, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But if you're honest with yourself, you'll see God producing this pattern in our lives. So... Verses 23 and 24, he oppressed, or rather he took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And then you go to verse 25, and notice what it says here. It says, he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand So here's Moses with all of this natural education and natural training, promoting himself as the uh, redeemer of the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't understand him at all. So the nation of Israel is following the same pattern of Joseph. Uh, They are right out of the gate rejecting Moses. Now, 40 years later, when he's at age 80, as we'll see in a minute, they will accept him. So just like Joseph, initial rejection, later acceptance, the same pattern is in the life of Moses, initial rejection, later acceptance. And Stephen's point at the end is the nation of Israel is making the same error or mistake uh, concerning Jesus or Yeshua. In fact, verse 25 goes real well with verse 9. Verse 25 is Israel's initial rejection of Moses. Verse 9 is Israel's initial rejection of Joseph. Verse 9, you remember, says the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him. And then you go down to verses 26 through 28, and you see the evidence of this initial rejection. It says, on the following day, this is still age 40 in Moses' life, he appeared to them as they were fighting together and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, men, you are brethren, why do you injure one another? 
So he understands his role as sort of a lawgiver, a ruler within Israel. And so the next day he sees two Hebrews fighting amongst themselves. And Moses tries to step in through his natural resources, just like he did the prior day concerning the Egyptian. He tries to step in with his natural resources and he tries to resolve the problem. Verse 27, but the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him, that's Moses, away saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Verse 28, you do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? So Moses, the day earlier, actually killed the Egyptian through his own naturalistic understanding of things. And now he wants to step in as sort of a ruler over the Jewish people. And he sees two Jewish slaves, two Hebrew slaves fighting with each other. Moses steps in with his natural talents and wants to resolve the situation. And they reject him. They say, who are you? And by the way, we saw what you did to that Egyptian yesterday. You're not going to kill one of us, are you? So this now pushes Moses into the second part of his life. For now he flees out of fear. He goes to Midian for 40 years, age 40 to age 80, and does the menial task of uh, shepherding. And yet that's the design of God because God is now giving him his spiritual training. And then you look at verse 29, it says, At this remark, Moses fled. Why is he fleeing? Because he's afraid. Why is he afraid? Because natural education doesn't tell you how to deal with fear. Spiritual education does. In your spiritual education, you learn to, to trust the Lord. Natural education doesn't teach you any spiritual principles like this, and so you react to a lot of things out of fear. So the fact that he is afraid uh, demonstrates that he is not ready to lead Israel, particularly through the Red Sea. Because the, the day is going to come where the Egyptians are coming in like a storm, his back is up against the Red Sea. The people of Israel are panicking. They're totally hitting the panic button. And you see Moses in the book of Numbers saying, don't, don't be afraid. God is going to provide a way. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to provide a way. So how did he get to that point where he was fearless like that? It wasn't his natural education that gave him that ability. It wasn't age 1 to 40 that gave him that ability. It was age 40 to age 80 that gave him that ability because on the backside of the desert, receiving the spiritual training in Midian, he learned to trust the Lord. So this guy is um, hes kind of like he's raw. He's got talent. He's got abilities. He's got gifts, but he's prone to fear, meaning he doesn't know how to trust God. He's prone to handling situations impulsively because he doesn't know how to rely upon the resources of God. So he's in desperate need of a second phase in his education, and this is where the Lord gives it to him. 
Verse 29, it says, At this remark Moses fled and became an alien. In the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And you'll see a reference to that in Exodus 2, verse 15 and verse 19. So there he goes out of Egypt into Midian, uh, which is basically modern-day Saudi Arabia. And he is so humiliated in that second phase of his education that when the Lord finally speaks to him and says, you know, arise, you're the Redeemer, Moses doesn't want anything to do with it. I mean, who am I that Pharaoh should listen to me? He wasn't saying that when he was 40. He thought he had arrived. But he goes through such a uh, leveling of his pride that by the time God shows up with the burning bush at age 80, Moses sees himself as totally inadequate for the task. So my point is, Moses is a different guy when you compare him at age 40 to age 80. And what made him a different guy is that middle tier of his education. The BD degree, backside of the desert degree. You go to verse 30. It says, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. Now we're at age 80 in Moses' life. The background of this would be Exodus uh, chapter 3 and verse uh, verse 1. And then verses 31 through 34, it says, When Moses saw it, he, he, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am, verse 32, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. In fact, when you study the book of Exodus, he tries to talk God out of God picking him to the point where God got angry at Moses. When he was at age 40, he probably had his hand up and said, I'm the guy that God's going to use. Now he's so humbled because of the middle part of his education that he sees himself as totally unworthy to the task. Verse 33, but the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Verse uh, 34, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and I have come down to rescue them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. Now notice this, that the revelation of God is happening in Midian. Just like for Abraham, the revelation of God happened to him, as we saw earlier in this sermon, in Mesopotamia. Later, we're going to see the revelation of God taking place at Mount Sinai. Why is that a big deal? Why why is Stephen interweaving all of this in his sermon, that God reveals himself outside the borders of Israel? He did it in Mesopotamia with Joseph. He did it in Egypt with Joseph. He did it in Midian with Moses. 
and he did it at Mount Sinai with Moses. Why does Stephen give in the sermon four examples where God revealed himself outside the borders of Israel? The answer is verse 48, where Stephen late in the sermon will make this point. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. So the Jews looked at the temple as a good luck charm. They felt that as long as the temple was standing, nothing bad could happen to them. Because after all, the temple and its precursor, the tabernacle, is the only place where God reveals himself. So they looked at the tabernacle or the temple as the sole revelatory activity of God. And Stephen is making the point in this speech that things are now different in the church age. The glory of God has left that temple. And he is now the Holy Spirit inhabiting the body of the Christian. And God has a right to do that. Because God never said, I only engage in my revelatory activity in the temple. So the temple and the tabernacle which preceded it were wonderful things, but they were never final, comprehensive sources of God's revelation. The Jewish people thought the temple is the only place where God reveals himself. Stephen in this sermon is weaving all of this material together to get to his final point there in verse 48, that God lives wherever he wants. If God wants to leave that temple and dwell the body of Christ, he can do that. And look at how God has acted in the past. He was never confined to the temple. Look at what he did in Midian. Look at what he did at Sinai. Look at what he did in Mesopotamia. Look at what he did with Joseph in Egypt. So that's why Stephen keeps weaving into his material here, you know, all of this information about God revealing himself outside the borders of Israel. I mean, the Jews thought God re- works only through our nation. It's basically what he, what they thought. It was arrogance and pride. It's like listening to some Christians talk about their church or their denomination. You know, God only works through our church. God only works through our group. God only works through our people. God only works through our country. And Stephen is saying nonsense. God works when he wants, where he wants, anytime he wants under any circumstances he wants. And if God has made a decision to leave the temple and have his spirit indwell the body of Christ, he is completely and totally free to do that. Check the historical record. Check your own Jewish record is is Stephen's point here. So what Stephen is doing here is really a, a masterpiece when you look at all of these parts. Stephen continues with the story of Moses, verse 35. This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of an angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. So back in verse 25, they rejected Moses. Forty years pass, Moses receives the second layer of his education, now he's age 80, 
Now they embrace him. They did the exact same thing with Joseph. Initially rejected him at age 17 when Joseph was age 17. But once at age 30, they submitted to him. And Stephen's point is the nation of Israel is doing the same thing. You're going through the exact same cycle. You're repeating the same patterns of the past. Uh, Currently, you're rejecting Jesus nationally, but the day in history will come where you will accept him and embrace him. And this is not stuff they want to hear concerning their own guilt, particularly when someone uses your own history (laughs) to prove their case. And this is why they killed Stephen on the spot. You know, as we're going to see, you go down to verse 36. Now Moses is age at age 80 and he's ready to start part three of his life. Now God is saying you've got the natural education. You can write. You're literate. You've got the spiritual education. You're humble. You know how to trust me. Okay. Now, now let's get, let's get busy. So the first part of Moses' life, up to age 40, he thought he was a somebody. The second part of Moses' life, up to age 80, he learned he was a nobody. And then in part three of his life, age 80 to age 120, he learned what God can do with a somebody that now believes he's a nobody. (laughs) And the problem with us is we have a difficult time realizing that we're nobodies because so much of our world system is through education, our natural talents, uh, is built on puffing us up. And there's nothing wrong with having natural gifts and talents, but you have to understand that those natural gifts and talents are not going to accomplish what God wants to accomplish through your life. You have to take those gifts and talents and give them to God for him to use. It's like the little boy who gave to Jesus the loaves and the fish. I mean, what if the little boy had held on to the loaves and fish? We would not have had the multiplication with the miracle that happened there in the Gospels. But because he relinquished what little he had and put those things into the hands of Jesus, you have the feeding of the 5,000. We have to learn to take what God has given us and see them as just little loaves and fish and put them into the master's hands. Uh, What is my education at the end of the day? Systematic theology, church history, um, Bible exposition, hermeneutics, right interpretation, homiletics, preaching. What is my spiritual gifting at the end of the day? What it is, is it's loaves and fish that are very small. And things are going to stay small until we learn to take the loaves and fish that we have and turn them over to Jesus. Then it becomes big. Moses didn't become big until he learned to do that. And it took uh, 40 years of spiritual training on the backside of a desert to learn that. And that's not something that comes easy It's not something that comes naturally. It's counterintuitive to our human pride 
and yet it's absolutely essential if we want to be used by God. So Moses has submitted to the process. Now he's at a point in his life where most people are ready to retire. And God says, okay, I'm going to start using you now. It's kind of interesting, some of these guys in the Bible, their most productive years are years in their old age. Study Daniel's prophecies. The greatest prophecies that Daniel received and wrote down took place in his life about age 80 to age 90. Study John's writings. John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Then he wrote the book of Revelation. And he wrote all of those books, we think, somewhere between age 85 and 95. Because I think John, um, like Daniel, like Moses, has to go through this middle tier of education where we, where they learn to submit what they have to God so that it can really multiply. But verse 35, they accepted him the second time. And this takes us into the third part of Moses' life. And this is the part of Moses' life that we know the most about. I mean, isn't it interesting that the um, the time of Moses' life that we're most familiar with is the last third? Nobody ever talks about the middle third, do they? We know something about the first third. We know something about the last third. But what about the middle third? Nobody ever talks about it. Those are the, the silent years that are necessary for character development. But once it takes place... Katie, bar the door. Look at what God can do. This man, verse 36, led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. In fact, look how successful he was. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From your brethren. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, which is a messianic prophecy of the Messiah indicating that when the Messiah comes, he will be a prophet like Moses. So Moses became the standard even for a coming Messiah uh, in the final third of his life. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. Now, we have a little problem here. Some of your versions say church in the wilderness. You said, well, pastor, I thought you'd been teaching us that the church started in Acts 2. And the church didn't exist in the Old Testament. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. How in the world are you getting the church in the wilderness in the time of Moses when the church didn't start until Acts 2? So people that are non-dispensational, in fact, we had a conference once uh, with uh, Mal Couch, and it was sort of invaded by amillennialists and people that didn't hold to our dispensational theology when I was living in the Dallas seminary area, Dallas area, 
And they all showed up, these amillennialists, to the conference, pointing to Acts 7, verse 38. Hey, you dispensationalists teach the church started in Acts 2, but I'm seeing here the church in the wilderness in the time of Moses. And they kind of acted like, you know, game, set, match, and we're all supposed to, you know, go home and say boo-hoo, you know, dispensational theology, I guess, is over, I guess, is the reaction that they were looking for. When it says church in the wilderness, it's just talking about a common gathering. That's all it's talking about. It's not infused with the meaning that Paul gives to the church in Ephesians 2 verse 14, where he has taken Jew and Gentile in one new man, the body of Christ, and broken down the dividing wall. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the dividing wall. The church in the wilderness here is not infused with Paul's meaning. Paul's understanding of the church did not start until Acts 2, the body of Christ. The only thing this is talking about is just a common gathering in the wilderness. It's not talking about Jew and Gentile being united together in one new man called the body of Christ. Paul calls the church a mystery, Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus. That is not an Old Testament concept. That's an Acts 2 concept that Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, prophesied was coming. Ephesians 3, verse 9, it says to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. For for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So this Ephesians understanding of the church is foreign to the pages of the Old Testament. It's hardly referenced in the Gospels. It doesn't come into existence until Acts 2. And then Paul doesn't even explain it in totality until the book of Ephesians. So just because you see the word church there, church in the wilderness, you have to define the word church by how it's used in context. Sometimes the word church just refers to a common gathering. Uh, for example, the rioters in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, verse 32, verse 39, and verse 41. These are rioters. They're called a church. Acts 19, verse 32, it says, So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the church... Ecclesia was in confusion. And the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. This is not a, a church the way Paul describes it. This is just a, a mob scene crowd. Acts 19.39, but if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. Acts 19.41, after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Some of your Bible translations say church. So just because you see the word church doesn't mean the word always means the same thing every time it's used. When Paul uses the word church, he's talking about 
something very special that doesn't exist in the pages of the Old Testament. He's talking about people, regardless of gender, regardless of whether they're Jew or Gentile, being brought together by the Lord in one new man called the body of Christ, where there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. You will not find that Pauline concept in the Old Testament. And simply identifying the word church in Acts 7 verse 38 doesn't solve anything. Because the word church is broad enough to include Paul's definition and also just a common gathering. In some cases, a mob scene. So how do you know which definition to apply to the word church? What's our three rules of Bible study? Context, context, context. And this is this actually becomes a big deal because Reformed theology teaches the one people of God. They don't believe there's a program for Israel and a separate program for the church. We're all one people. We're all part of the church. In fact, the church, they believe, started with Abraham. Some believe the church started when Adam got outside the Garden of Eden and, you know, had his clothes put on. That's when the church started. No, the church never started back then. All of that leads up to God's plan and program for Israel. The program for the church doesn't start until Acts 2. Jesus said it was coming, Matthew 16, verse 18. It began the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, looks back to what happened in Acts 2 and explains it. That's basic dispensational theology. You are in a dispensational church, Sugarland Bible Church, that teaches this. So we believe there are separate programs for Israel and the church. Reformed theology says, no, the church has already always been in existence. And so they'll show up at your conferences and point to Acts 7, verse 38, which talks about the church in Old Testament times, not understanding that the word church doesn't mean the same thing everywhere it's used. Sometimes it can refer just to a common gathering. That's how it's being used here in Acts 7, verse 38. And then... Just kind of wrapping up there with verse uh, 38, and then we'll stop. Together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received the living oracles to pass on to you. So this is talking about what Moses received there at Mount Sinai when he was age 80. So age 80, God's ready to use him, and he receives the law of God at Mount Sinai, and he mediates that law to the Jewish people. And notice again that God can reveal himself outside the borders of Israel, because there you have uh, an angelic revelation at Sinai, where Moses was given living oracles. Notice this, it says together with the angel. 
angels mediated God's law. Galatians 3.19 says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise was made. The law was given via angels. Hebrews 2 verse 2. For if by the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression through disobedience received a just penalty. And here's your third reference to angels. In this case, an angel, the angel mediated the Mosaic law through Moses to the people of Israel Probably one of the greatest revelations that God ever gave is the Mosaic Law. It taught the nation, the redeemed people how to live. It didn't redeem them. They already were redeemed. They were redeemed through the Red Sea crossing. The law, very important to understand this, the law was not given to redeem a people. It was given to a redeemed people. Okay, we're redeemed, Lord. How do we interact with you? God says, I'm glad you asked. That's commandments one through four. Okay, Lord, well, how do we interact with each other? God says, I'm glad you asked. That's commandments six through ten. Well, Lord, how do we worship you? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's the revelation concerning the tabernacle. Well, Lord, what do we do when we sin? As your redeemed people. God says, I'm glad you asked. Here's what the sacrificial, animal sacrificial system is about. Well, Lord, how do we interact with the nations around us? And God says, I'm glad you asked. That's why I called you a kingdom of priests when I gave you the Mosaic law. So, so nothing in the Mosaic law taught them how to be justified before God. What it taught them is how a redeemed people is supposed to live. I mean, it is an absolutely fantastic revelation that God gave them. And he did the whole thing outside the borders of Israel. So God doesn't need the temple. He chooses to use it. He revealed himself at Sinai, Arabia, Egypt with Joseph, and at the very beginning with uh, Abraham in Mesopotamia. So, you guys didn't think I'd finish this, did you? So Stephen's point is, Israel concerning Moses got it right the second time. Israel concerning Joseph got it right the second time. You're making the same mistake with Jesus. And so, next time, we'll see how fast Israel rebelled against Moses. Because he was only gone for 40 days on the mountain. And it didn't take them long to build a golden calf. If you build a golden calf, you're only violating the first two commandments, right? No gods before me, no graven images. And who's leading the charge into the golden calf? The high priest, who should have known better. And then God confronts the high, Moses confronts the high priest, Aaron, and he says, I, I just don't really know what happened here. We just took this metal and we threw it into a fire and this calf just popped out. 
You know, it kind of reminds me of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where they blamed every, everything but themselves when they were confronted. It's the woman you gave me, Adam said. Adam, what have you done? It's the woman you gave me. Okay, Eve, what have you done? It's the serpent. So Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on, as we say. So with that, we're going to stop. Father, we're grateful for the book of Acts and this summation of history. Help us to rightly divide this section uh, so we can really grow in what you have for us. Help us to walk these principles out this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. Ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Now is a good time to take off if you need to.